Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week. I am delighted once again to have my co-host, Graham Brown. And uh, Graham from Pickal uh, is one of those stars who helps people uh, get onto podcasts. He has his own agency and he also hosts many podcasts. And so we've enjoyed it so much, these episodes we've done together. We're going to carry on with a few of our guests. Mm. We're going to have a, a joint guest. We're looking forward to it. And this week, Graham, we're doing LQ, the last of the eight, before mm. we summarize next month. Um, legacy and stewardship and leaving things better than you found them. What, you know, what does it mean for you, Graham? And just tell us a bit about how you are at the moment. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. I'll quote uh, one of the authors that's come out a few times in previous episodes of these podcasts we've done together, Stephen Covey. Mm. He said, legacy, um, talking about it in the seven habits of highly effective people recommended to anybody there as a leadership book if you haven't read it it's kind of a 101 isn't it he said live laugh leave a legacy that was it that was the i think the summary to the seven habits mm. pretty concisely put maybe it's too easy what do you think jonathan do you think no. it should be that easy I, I i do think people strive too hard to try and be something they're not or uh, get immortality uh, with the naming of a bridge or some <laughs> plaque or uh, naming a, of a bridge. Is that what yeah, you're... little dis. <laughs> oh, I've been named after a bridge. <laughs> but I, I you think, made it. Yeah, oh, that's the my, Bowman that's my Perk suspension bridge. bridge. <laughs> that's right. No, I think mine will probably be some toilet in a public convenience somewhere. <laughs> you know. uh, the crapper. Um, oh, you know those bench, those wooden benches. You, you have they're, oh, a yes. bit, well, yeah. they're a bit sad when you read them, aren't they? They're like you know, they'll say like Rosie something or other. Yeah, you know, used to sit here and have her sandwiches for the last thirty-two years or whatever. That's right. And yeah, a little plaque yeah. on it. Yeah, it's That's not a really, legacy, isn't it? It's touching yeah. people, isn't it? I, I like the ones where they've got a bench and it's a, a view over a, a valley or something quite beautiful. You can sit right. there and and meditate and take in take in. Life. Yeah, a bench. Yeah, yeah, a bench. Keep it simple. <laughs> yeah, but. Yeah. <laughs> Organizations talk about bench strength. This is about a strong <laughs> bench. Um, so uh, legacy, which is our mm. definition, leaving a legacy in your lifetime, stewardship, leaving your job better than you found it. Uh, and I, it's particularly um, front of mind for me as yesterday, uh, Lee, my wife, who's the CEO of the Inspiring Leadership Foundation, uh, who, who's really calling in life is to help vulnerable girls go get out of situations of abuse um trafficking uh, mental health issues and, and give them a chance in life through mentoring and coaching and finding people who will give them a leg up a chance to get into a job get out of serious organized crime or wherever they might be or just their lives have really taken a downward spiral and hearing the personal stories wow. of the way she and her mentors and coaches have changed the lives of individual girls who to, and, and uh, an older woman as well, who who turned their lives around. And that's a legacy, even mm. if you make a difference to one. And you know the story mm. of the starfish, which for for, for listeners mm. and for watchers, I'll I'll just repeat the, the, the story 
which has become quite a sort of well well used story but i think it resonates for me it, it, it somehow catches me emotionally that means something and it's that you know i was recently on holiday with lee in mauritius and i imagine a sort of beach like that where we had uh cyclone freddie came the the biggest cyclone for 30 years which caused us to be um asked to stay in our rooms for 24 hours while the cyclone was whipping all the palm trees and tearing up beaches and things but Imagine that after the cyclones passed, you're, you're walking along one of these beaches and you see all these um, uh, these the starfish washed up, miles and miles of sandy beach and starfish everywhere washed up and they're drying out in the midday sun and they're dying. And you see this little old lady coming closer to you and she's doing something. You, you're peering, you can't quite tell out what she's doing. She's picking up these individual starfish and she's throwing them back in. And you meet her and you have a conversation. So we're doing, she said, I'm saving the starfish. And you go, there's thousands of them. You're not going to make a difference. And she picks another one up and she goes, I made a difference to that one. And, and that for me is why we do the charity, the Inspiring Leadership Foundation, mm. why we help other people, why I coach CEOs and leaders, why you and I are having these podcasts and these conversations, because I don't know, maybe loads of people are going to listen to this and this go, this is crap not gonna listen to these guys talk yak on but actually i have had some lovely notes from people around the world who go i always listen to your podcast it really helps me it mm. gives me a lift up and if i made a difference to that one person by by the person i've interviewed and their experiences and stories or you and i swapping stories that with tips and techniques that people apply to their lives and it enhances them that's a legacy what was what's mm. your thoughts yeah yeah you you said earlier jonathan about People try to, they aspire to grand game changers, dents in the universe, et cetera, you know, changing the world. But sometimes the best legacies are just, you know, impacting one or two people in a very positive way because that will then impact other people. You know, there's a definite knock on effect from that. Mm. You can, everybody can, can leave a legacy with the people around them. And especially, you know, like our families, the people, our loved ones around us, those could be our legacies, right? That the people that we help, you know, you don't need to influence millions of billions of people, you know, that's enough. Mm. I think if you live your life well and do it for other people in a positive way and positively impact somebody in a, in a positive way, then that is a noble life lived. Mm. I don't think you have to kind of compare it to the celebrity, you know, world saving you know, stories that we're, we're sort of the, the media carousel parades in front of us, right. Of these mm. people who are doing these amazing things. Like, yeah, most people have good hearts and want to do something. So we can all aspire to that at least. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've been listening to uh, Wim Hof's book, the Wim Hof mm. method. And, and as I was telling you, going between the hot tub and the, the cold plunge pool, which I bought my cold pod and every day I'm, I'm in there. And in fact, my wife surprised me. She said, I'm coming with you. And I go, really? You're going to do it too? She goes, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do this. And sure enough, bold as brass, Lee got into it for, for two minutes and sat there in the freezing cold water with the ice floating around at the top. Very impressed. But uh, <laughs> the Wim Hof has made a huge difference in in what mm -hmm. he's, he, he's done to encourage people to get over ailments and inflammation, things like that. It can become a bit cult-like, but and he is completely barking mad. But aside from that, he has change the lives of people. But I'm also drawn to the point you make that we don't have to do anything particularly special, but mm. the journey is within first. There's that story 
uh, and I think it's written around a, a stone uh, sarcophagus coffin in Westminster Cathedral uh, of a bishop. Forgive me, I don't know the bishop's name, but he's, he, he, he said this. He said, when I was a young man, I thought I could change the world. Hmm. But as I got older, I realized that perhaps I might try and change my country first and then I could change other things and then the world. And mm. as I got older still, I realized, well, maybe perhaps I'll just change my town. Uh, I can do that first. And then as I got older still, I thought perhaps I'll just change the friends around me. And here, as I come to the end of my life, I realized that if I changed myself first, improved myself, then that would influence others around mm. me who would mm. see my example and they may change, which might change my town, my country, and who knows, change the world. Mm. And, and and that yeah. really resonates with me. This this journey that I'm on, uh, as we say, next next week will be my on um, the 28th of March, my my 61st birthday. And and having had moments in life where you thought, mm, this might be the end, but no, it's not. I've given, been given another path, a little bit longer, an extension of time. That you realize that even like Marcus Aurelius, until the end of mm. his life, he was still learning and growing and going mm. to classes on stoicism and self-improvement. And I think I'm going to be one of those guys. People might think me a bit nutty, but I'm pretty certain you are, Graham, because you're constantly mm. looking to push yourself, grow yourself. Uh, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, that's, that's what it's about, isn't it? I think it was Gandhi said, um, live like you were going to die tomorrow, but learn like you were going to live forever mm. something like that and i apologize to if gandhi and all the fans out there if i've packed that quote something along those lines but i mean he was the one that said my life is my message which i think is probably for me one of the most powerful quotes about legacy i think he was asked by a journalist what was his message it was a maybe a british journalist at the time and he just said that Mm. To me, that's powerful. You don't have to have a why. You don't have to have a manifesto. You just live your life well and positively and with a good heart. Of course, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to offend people and piss people off and annoy people and do wrong things. But that's part of being human. You can forgive and forgive yourself as well. Mm. Mm. So yeah. maybe, maybe the, the legacy conversation, Jonathan, needs to be about, you know, not the grand legacies, but, you know, what, can we all do you know within our capabilities you know that doesn't require access or doesn't require power or doesn't require influence or money we can all do good things with mm. an open heart no I, I i really love that idea and i think it's just empowering ourselves to actually do what we can do where we are with what we have mm. I don't know where that sort of comes from, but I, I certainly love that quote that my life is my message from mm. Gandhi. That that really resonates for me. And I, I think that my late father, and you know, as you know, his pictures up there on the back and his hats, his naval hat and his sword are up there. But his life was his message. It just happened to be 33 years. He lived his whole life. Mm, mm. It just was only 33 years long. Uh, he uh, hoped it was going to be longer, but he and the other Navy pilots trying to land a huge heavy metal uh, aircraft carrier what, on a ship that's pitching and tossing at the Atlantic, um, uh, trying to land on the size of a small tennis court. Um, 
was a hell of a challenge. I was watching uh, one of those silly TikTok clips of somebody trying to land a small plane on the, the little helicopter landing zone on the top of the Burj uh, Khalifa or Burj Al Arab, I think it was, in, mm. in Dubai, and how he had to strip it down and all this kind of stuff. And he practiced it on a runway, just landing <laughs> in the, this zone. And many times he kept going over the edge. But then he eventually did do it uh, after two or three false passes and was so excited. And then afterwards could just nip off the end, just plunge straight down with with smoke billowing out from the back in different colours. It was a pretty cool clip. But it was a bit of, um, you know, it, that's something that he's done, which is unusual. But mm. um, some people can claim world records for eating the most hamburgers. I don't think that's a bit of a legacy. Um, I just think that's gluttony. But uh uh, let's go on to questions that came from the audience. Mm, let's um, do it. CEO in Israel, uh, LQ, he said, uh, how do you focus on making a real difference in your work and life? Uh, what's, your, what's your thoughts, Graham? What's, uh, how would you respond? That's an interesting question. So the question is, why do you want to make a difference? Mm, yeah. Or, or how do you focus on it? Yeah. Why? What's the point of it? If you want to make a difference just to feel that you're you're doing something of value then you know that's fine but then you know is being different of value i think that's important isn't it that you know we all talk about being different thinking different you know the famous apple and steve jobs sort of moniker is that is that actually the, the key to legacy or doing something amazing? I guess that, you know, the point is you actually have to do, I mean, if you want to stand out, you've got to do something different. You've got to be different, think different. Well, I get, you know, I think we talked, we've talked a bit about this before, haven't we, Jonathan? Like, you know, that the, the challenge really isn't doing it. It's what stops you doing it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Because we all have a natural, you know, um, equilibrium, which is that, or a flow state, which we will, gravitate towards if we remove the obstructions and the the work that gets in the way of that and a part of that is actually the fear the fear of the opinions of other people and i see you know if you look around at successful people we've talked about leaders and we've talked about successful people who've left legacies what's really interesting about vast majority of them is they were slightly socially dysfunctional which is really interesting because, you know, if you look at people who've done amazing things, it's, you know, very common in business. If you think about, for example, entrepreneurs like, you know, the Elon Musk's and the Steve Jobs and et cetera, they're all a bit odd, mm. which is interesting because they are naturally doing different things because they don't care about what other people think of them. So that sort of brings us full circle to the question is that you know we all can do different and be amazing and do these things of change but it's not a case of oh i need more motivation or more resources or more information it's about what's the barrier that stops me doing that and it comes back to you know worrying about the expectations of other people cool. and i think that's it because you you what successful people do is that they just don't care and you know the people who don't do anything in life care too much about what other people think of them which is a strange sort of corollary of you know the whole idea of you know um self-identity and success isn't it it's like that's the challenge is that you've actually got to be slightly strange and wired differently i don't know mm. if that's kind of a, a, a i'd like to see the data on it jonathan but if you look at some of the leaders that we've got in our list 
you know, if you look down their sort of personality types, they're not all, they're, they're slightly out on the spectrum, aren't they, really, yeah. I think. Yeah, I, I, I think that's so true that there's like, if you worry too much what others think about you, you'd be surprised how little they do. They're not thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. And we do spend, and I know I have over my life, this this wish to be liked or mm. popular or, you know, you're not in the cool gang, but you wanted to be in the cool gang in the playground. Uh, but I, I, I think I was one of those ones who was a bit different, either dysfunctional or dyslexic or uh, just a bit odd. And And, and I think... To many of the successful leaders that I've had on the podcast or coached, and I think in some ways, the ones who are most happy, balanced and have a normal childhood and everything is just pretty easy and not not concerned about too much, just easygoing. They they never really have achieved what, what people think is greatness, but the ones who are massively dysfunctional. Yeah. Uh, have a father who was a narcissist or suffered abuse or whatever it might be, or just, just a very unusual, um, dysfunctional life, uh, are striving, like I was, to to prove to a long dead Mm-mm. father that I was good enough or to prove to a teacher who said I was thick that I was good enough, so I want to become a visiting professor at a business school and all this kind of stuff to to prove to others who really... Don't care. I remember the phantoms uh, in your head. These are yeah, yeah, phantom conversations, aren't they? Yeah. My 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 mother said to me when I'd written a book about um, my time working for Field Marshal the Lord Inge. She was a very difficult man to work for. He'd fired the previous two ADCs, and I was I was his third one. I, the only reason he kept me on is they went, Peter, look, you can't you can't get rid of three in a best part of a year. You're going to have to keep hold of this one. <laughs> and he goes, but he's useless. Oh yeah, well look, just just somehow let him finish his year off. But I, I wrote a book, a private notebook of all my grievances and all my little yeah. chunterings that I had about working <laughs> for this 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 white collar psychopath. Um, and and my mother read it and she went, "Yes, darling, very interesting. Now burn it, because he because he doesn't know anything about your grievances, nor is he interested in you. You don't yeah. even feature in his life. He's moved on, and so but it's eating you." Yeah, like, like the, the things eat us for a long time in our legacy. Yeah, like, oh, they never go away, do they? I no, mean, you, you no. work through, the deep work is there. We've talked about that Hoffman method, mm. you know. And um, yeah, this is the fire, isn't it? That is is set in you since an early age, and we're talking about legacy today. And there's almost like in your own lifetime, there is a legacy, isn't there? Like your parents shape you or they have a huge influence in you. And a lot of that has to do with their love or lack of love or abandonment, all these issues that we all deal with. Those then become fire inside of us, which either burns us or makes us, you know, you're either forged in that fire or you're burnt to a crisp. And you can see that, can't you? You know, like that sort of form, it really then depends like your teenage years. And, you know, you talked about Lee and the work that she does is that in those teenage years, you can see how somebody with that fire can go either way in their Mm. formative years. They can either be nurtured, you know, you see a great example is, um, you know, like Mike Tyson and Costamado, you know, like here's a guy who grew up on the streets and was just, from a 
I think his mom was a prostitute, a junkie and a drug dealer. And his dad just kind of, you know, ran away, you know, and he was just a street thug. And then he got taken in by this father figure, this trainer, Costamato, and um, he turned him into, you know, an Olympic champion. So that could have gone the other way. He could come just like, you know, another gang kid who's just going to, you know, get shot, live the, like a street rat, right? Mm. I mean, I know his story isn't great long term, but he turns it around. But that's the point, isn't it? These, that's the legacy part. We all kind of live out these almost like echoes and you see that don't they you know like we've talked about our fathers for example the influence they've had on our lives and i think acknowledging that is part of the legacy isn't it acknowledging mm. the good and the bad forgiving it and realizing how that has affected us you know and how that still continues to affect us right and mm. how also that will affect our children mm. you know and you know it's, it's been well documented those who have issues and we've all had issues with their sort of fathers and especially men with their fathers in their early lives those issues manifest as echoes throughout our relationships with other male friends throughout life and that especially work status and friendships as well so you know, these are the echoes of legacy i think beyond work and society this is sort of the very personal stuff that i think a lot of people don't admit affects us very very powerful and and two thoughts come from that one is this um this idea about the, the legacy and the generations mm. and they're thinking now that in our dna um the trauma can pass down so that the trauma of generations from oh, yeah. the nazi holocaust passed down generations and, and some of them have mental health issues which which come from that time and what they had and I think of, uh, you know, my grandfather, who was a, a, a soldier in the Honorable Artillery Company in the First World War, got smacked over his head by a German Marlin spike, a big, big mallet, Oof. I think, which went through his helmet and knocked him unconscious. They thought he was dead. He was left in a, in a, a shell hole in no man's land for about two days and then came to and slowly crawl back through the, 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 the blood sucking mud to get his way across the, the mm. battlefield back in. But he was never right after that. He was suffering from PTSD, mm. depression. They didn't know what it was in those days. But but sort of that passed on down. My brother David suffered from from, from deep depressive right, moments right. before before he tragically died before his time, age 63, as you know. And and, mm. and I think what went on, it's very interesting what happened to your, your parents and their parents and yeah, their parents yeah. and, and how it influenced you. And how can we break the patterns is yeah. why I did the Hoffman process to look at patterns of behavior that we've mirrored or copied or done the opposite to someone avoiding negative love, trying to trying to get love mm, from mm. parents who may not be there either physically or they're just not alive uh, or models that you have like uh, a boarding school housemaster or the army or whatever it might be. And how you, you, have to break with it understand what went on and that they yeah. did the best they could and their legacy was passing on to you what they thought they knew but it might not be the right thing for you and mm -hmm. i think uh the other thought i had was transference this idea that uh we see in people perhaps our father or someone like that so either oh, yeah. we're attracted to them 
or we have to take a particular dislike of them and it's nothing to do with them yeah it's, it's the avatar our, isn't it it's all yeah. our shit it's all our yeah. stuff and that was one of the good things on the hopman process i remember a couple of you know conversations people had either with me or i had with them about how i triggered in them some stuff which was not about me <laughs> but wow. it reminded them of someone else who was a bit like me and they either disliked me or warmed to me because of that. Uh, it's interesting. It's powerful, transverse, it? yeah. yeah, it's very deep, isn't it? You've talked about this generational trauma and you talked about DNA. I mean, DNA effectively is a biological legacy, isn't it? It's carried in our, mm. you know, our, our very cells and our nature. And it's information that's passed. You can trace it all the way back to the original you know, the original sort of, you know, they talk about those sort of identifiable figures, don't they? If you can trace like the chromosomes on the female line back mm -hmm. thousands of generations, maybe hundreds of thousands, it's all contained. But there's also this psychological DNA, isn't there, that we are impacted by. And you mentioned about acknowledging it. And then yeah. I think the key part of it is forgiving it, isn't it? It's like, you know, with my father, like being very angry, and I'm sure those that listen and maybe felt this is that, you know, being angry with him for things which he was working through from his father, you know, his father, he, his father died when my dad was aged five, I think, you know, his, his, my grandfather, my biological grandfather was a farmer. He died of TB, which right. is like, you know, they call it the working man's disease, right? Cause it's, you know, he was out, on the farm drinking you know got an infection um and then you know i think he died quite young so you know he, my dad had lived through that and that that infected him and then i experienced that trauma from somebody i've never met you know i never met my grandfather mm. so you know and i wonder what his legacy was you know from his parents so mm. that or that could affect the way that i treat my son but you know i think i've consciously at some point in my life decided to not through the Hoffman me method, but similar, you know, that sort of deep work, acknowledging it and then coming to that forgiveness, isn't it? They, they call it in the movies atonement. Yeah. You know, it, it's a, it's a religious um, significance as well. You know, the at one, yeah. that's what it literally means, doesn't it? You know, and you look at any movie like star Wars, where it's Luke atones with his dad, you know, Darth Vader, that piece isn't it? it's just a biblical scene isn't it so mm. i think even though i atoned with my dad when he was passed away but mentally had gone through those conversations that's legacy because then you can only when you break that acknowledge it first forgive it and then break it rewrite those patterns can you pass on something positive to the next generation it's spot on and bob hoffman saw it as a sort of cycle of firstly awareness until you're aware you're never going to be able to deal with it so there's, there's awareness of the legacy of your parents and your grandparents and, and, and how they were when they were children, almost imagining yourself age five, yeah. meeting with your dad age five, sitting with your feet dabbling in a stream or something, chatting to him, two five-year-olds, you know, understand what life was like for him, um, to understand why he did what he did and have compassion for yourself and compassion for him, and, and then have exercises to break patterns, neuro uh neural pathways and, and mm. have choosing to make new synaptic connections uh 
Mm. which get myelinated and then those become the new pathways because they're super fast and more like super fast broadband compared to the old connection and this is now the the faster route that you have passing through i i think it's it's a whole fascinating area this idea atonement compassion mm. and, and not being kept prisoner by your past and your legacy mm. and your father's story and your grandfather's story grandmother uh, and mother's story or other people uh, who were, you know, primary care givers for you, like my my grandmother, because you know she and my mother were probably looking after me, or housemaster at school. Um, uh, isn't this fascinating? Gosh, there's so much we can talk about. Let's let's yeah. pick a. The next one was the CMO. Uh, in that was a great U. question, by the way. Oh, to, got us going, didn't it? Your listener, yeah, absolutely, great, yeah, love great, it, great question. Uh, and he, and he was asking LQ, what's more important? adding value in the short term versus adding value in the long term. You know, the, his point when he was talking with me mm. is that, you know, um, Simon Sink did this one, didn't he? This uh, infinite and finite uh, mm. concept of uh, that, that actually we're measured and we're rewarded for short term results. But actually, maybe the things that leave the longest legacy are sustainable change mm. over the long term. What's what's your thoughts on this? What's more important, adding value in the short term versus the long term? Yeah, well, you need to do both because um, let, let's say we put this in the context of a business leader. You need the short term wins to buy your time to be able to you know, justify the long term you know, projects. It's very difficult to have everybody set on the long term goals when you're not winning in the short term because people are less, you know, uh, long-term focused than, you know, leaders generally are. I mean, that's the point of being a leader. You should be focused on those big wins, big long-term goals. I, I read Jeff Bezos from Amazon. Apparently he has this 10,000 year clock, which I just find fascinating the idea. And you know, you can imagine this 10,000 year clock, which just ticks, you know, one full, circumference one full like cycle of the clock face is ten thousand years so you can imagine the time that he's had it it's probably only done like i don't know i can't calculate it on the fly but a few minutes right but th that's the whole point is that it was there to remind him about those long-term horizons how important that is you know i remember going way back in the early days of amazon everybody was saying amazon 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 not making any money how can this thing can ever become you know possible you know, for years and years, he was just reinvesting all the dividends back into the, the company and, you know, reinvesting the profits, not distributing any dividends to shareholders. And then, you know, suddenly overnight, he became the richest man in the world. Now, that's purely in the context of business, but the, the story applies to everything, doesn't it? That, you know, it sometimes you only see that tip of the iceberg, that you only see when, you know, that long that sort of long game hidden. It's what they call the long, hard road to overnight success. Mm. You know, like, so you, that is the result of long-term planning. Somebody's put in. So to answer that question, I would say you've got to be set on the long-term goals, um, but you've got to be conscious of batting for the side and winning the short-term ones as well. I've covered both my bases there. Mm. I really haven't asked the question, but I think, you know, long-term, Studies have proven it though, haven't they, Jonathan? Those who commit to long-term goals and visions generally end up uh, more successful over the over that long term. 
Yeah, I, I think there's this um, bit like the, the book Essentialism that we've mentioned before, this idea of the two circles of one like, little hedgehog with, with small arrows coming out in all directions from all sides, or the other one, which is just one massive arrow going up the page. That's the only thing, single arrow from the circle, that this idea that you can waste your time and energy on lots of small things, or you could go for a, a big, hairy, audacious goal, a BHAG, and uh, and and do that and i i'm drawn by this idea of the 10,000 uh, year clock uh, and and comparing it to the 4,000 weeks of that book yeah. 4,000 weeks where you know in my case i'm uh, i've got if i was to live to 80 um and i hope i do live way beyond that to 100 120 who knows um if if uh, longevity is to be believed as the research by Dr. Mark Hyman's having it. He wants to make it to 120. But the point is, I've only got a thousand weeks left. And I, you know, mm. just I just had a couple uh recently. And I went, oh, right, okay. So I've got less than that, you know, 998 weeks. Um and it, it really makes you think about uh, it, it's that it's that that for those who are listening, I've got one hand just in front of my eyes. Mm. And the other hand with my arm fully extended and you have to move between both of these and think about the short term right up against your face mm -hmm. and the long term way out there in the distance uh, and and change your perspective of them both as you say you, you have to live to be present in this moment and this moment mm -hmm. and this moment at the same time as thinking how, how would i like to leave things for my children mm -hmm. and my grandchildren and uh, making a difference in the lives of the CEOs and the teams that I influence. It, it is a good it is a good balance. What about mm. if I was just picking up as we look through the definition of it, but making it a sustainable difference based on your mm. personal contribution and asking yourself these three questions. Am I leading a life of survival, a life of success or a life of significance? Mm. So, so survival is the bottom of the pyramid. Success is what people think they want, but is it actually a life of significance? And this isn't doesn't have to be world famous, but but just you are significant in somebody else's life that yeah. you've you've helped, you made a difference for that one. The sort of starfish approach. What what thoughts come to mind? Yeah, I think a lot of us find ourselves caught up in survival, don't we? That's the reality. It's hard to think outside of that when you're in that fight or flight mode mm. you know anybody that started a new business will have understood and felt survival mode you know what that the reality of that is that you know never having any kind of security in a business until you know quite well into it into your sort of business career so everybody's experienced that and, and when you're in that it's very hard to think about success and significance, especially significance, because you're really just thinking about making bank at the end of the month. Mm. And imagine that is just the nature of survival, isn't it? You can't think long term. So I, I think, you know, everybody would want to be and make a significant impact on those around them in a positive way. But the, the problem is, is that, you know, when you're hungry, when you're tired, when you're fighting for survival, it's very difficult to think those thoughts, right? And, you know, we've talked about it, like being tired and having the inner demons. You know, you and I have both traveled in our times and, you know, you've rocked up with your 
partner to a place in the world, you know, going to some, you know, you go on these crazy sort of weekends away, like a day trip somewhere in Europe and you get there and you're tired and you're like hungry looking for a place to eat. And it's like, what about this place? And then, oh, it's closed. And then, okay, next one. What about this place? And it's, oh, and it's like, you know, you could just feel that you're at the edge now. You're at flashpoint, like you and your wife. It's going to happen any minute now. If they turn us away and tell us that the next place is closed, that's survival mindset in the extreme. When you're thinking about that, you're not thinking about, oh, look, we're in this, we've all, both gone away to this lovely city, Prague or Paris or Brussels for a weekend together to spend time together. You're not thinking about enjoying that time and being in the moment. So I think it goes, it goes back, Jonathan, to that idea, isn't it? What stops us as opposed to how can we do that? It's because I think what stops us being successful and making significance is being stuck in survival mode. So that's the key, isn't it? It's like, okay, understanding it, accepting it, and then thinking about what can I do to get out of this? Because when you're fighting survival, you can't think about long-term, can you? Well, well, this is uh, comes to mind in the, the news as we're recording this. We've got uh, Credit Suisse uh, has bombed uh, as an organization, and it's been acquired for a couple of billion by UBS, the other Swiss uh, investment bank. But, you know, there are those who say, well, they, they, they've gone from a, a business in success to one in survival to one that's crashed um and perhaps it is because some of the people in there were taking actions and doing things which were just based on short-term success for them mm. to get their ferrari um but actually um not in that organization necessarily though maybe i'm sure there were people there uh, i found too often in investment banking that people are interested in their own success their own wealth but actually not significance for the, the the whole organization. It's just what they can get out of it for themselves. Mm. And that's when uh, it all unwinds and that greed takes over and organizations um, lose trust and lose credibility and, and people pull the plug. I don't know any thoughts you have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, what, what's the significance that those organizations are making? I mean, they're sort of a necessary evil, but, you know, they're, they're even just the products that they deal with don't really exist. They're manufactured products, right? You know, when they think about the kind of derivatives and, you know, the investment, you know, the investment funds that they, they, they run or the, you know, those, those things aren't real. Like what, what does it do? What does it, how does it affect? How is that significant? How is that improving our lives around us? Right? So, you know, again, like you can, you can build organizations that thrive thrive financially on on greed yeah and so it's not necessarily like monetary and financial success is a moniker of actually significance they seem to be like polar opposites mm -hmm. you know that maybe it's going down to that micro level and the individual and saying okay how are you helping people like just being a good person i know that sounds really trite but it's like sometimes that is probably the best thing you can do as opposed to, you know, build something and make a lot of money and then, you know, change these people's lives. As they say, the road to hell is paved with good intention. I'm sure a lot of people go into these organizations thinking they're going to make a difference. But ultimately what happens over time is the DNA takes over, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do think it, it's back to the moral quotient and, and that, that the values and the principles, what you will do and what you won't do. And, um, 
you know, some of the people I know, uh, you know, I had one partner in, uh, former partner in McKinsey, and I were talking, and he said it was a great organization, but he said it's produced three or four um, newsworthy characters who were just got greedy in the extreme and did completely unethical things. Uh, and that their whole career had been in McKinsey, but they got so focused on their greed and their success that they mm-hmm. they did things which shamed the original founding fathers and uh, the whole ethos behind it, where integrity was everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's very easy to lo- to lose your way in the mist. I've been mm. uh, listening to uh, General Sir Cedric Delves's book, uh, Across an Angry Sea, um, mm. about D Squadron of 22 SAS. Uh, and there were times when the helicopters, where they're all a Navy, the Fleet Air Arm, my father's uh, organization, were flying almost blind on the uh, Gritviken Glacier. Uh, and eventually they crashed on it because they, they lost all horizon and there was a storm going on and there was a whiteout. And luckily, the both uh, helicopters, uh, all the crew and all the SAS guys somehow survived uh re- remarkable and they were mm. rescued uh in better weather but but there's times when you lose all vision all horizon all sense mm-hmm. of what is appropriate and i think that analogy is quite relevant for what must have been happening in places like credit suisse with certain individuals mm-hmm. doing things which were good for them but they'd lost the horizon which was what was right for credit suisse and for their investors Mm. And as a result, the problem snowballed and it got worse and worse, which led to the, the the untimely crash. And there's a bit of a panic going on about banking mm. and a, a bit like an, another banking crisis coming. And what will be next uh, no with, surprise. with um, the uh, the bank in um, Silicon Valley, Silicon yeah. Valley Bank and, and the loss of credibility there. Um, yeah, people do interesting things. Let's go to have a look at our. Uh, our characters that we we wondered about. Uh, you had Robert F. Kennedy with his legacy, Martin Luther King with his legacy, Greta Thunberg, her legacy now, Honda, Rosa Parks, Bill Gates, Tim Cook, Steve Jobs. What 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 thoughts come with those individuals about about their legacy? And Martin Luther King's an interesting one because um, obviously he was assassinated and a, a controversial figure at the time. If you think of the civil rights movement. In the 60s and he uh, I mean obviously he's been celebrated in later life but post-life late you know the he, he sort of at the time in the 60s he he wasn't as seen as the iconic change maker that he is today of course he had a huge impact but was very much distrusted by the media and so it's interesting like if you look at I think Gallup run a survey in the 60s and Martin Luther King when when they asked at the time you know of the, all these you know change makers leaders in society who has had the most legacy Martin Luther King was way down you know like not even in the top 20 you know so he didn't even feature at the time when he was active and you know his politics and his voice and his message were out there and the, you know the need was the biggest, but in the, the turn of the century in 1999, they ran that survey again, and they asked Americans who was you know which American has had the biggest impact on the 20th century. And you think about all the different choices that you have, um, you know, even the Kennedys, for example. Mm. Um, Martin Luther King came out number one. 
so I find that fascinating, like, you know, good 35 years after his death. Mm, mm. So that idea of legacy is that at the time, it's very difficult to understand sometimes that the message somebody is teaching us, because maybe we're not ready for it. Maybe society's not ready. As they say, leadership's not a popularity contest, is it? Mm. You know, leadership is about taking the path of most resistance. And that's why sometimes like, you know, the leaders who have the biggest impact at the time are very unpopular mm. because they have to say, look, you can't continue doing what you're doing this way. This ain't going to work. I've got to take you out and it's going to hurt and you're going to be uncomfortable, but you're going to hate me for this. But you know, maybe when I'm gone, you're going to thank me for it. Right. And we can see that when you talk about legacy, that's the Martin Luther King story. So I think we have to think about that in the context of our legacies is that maybe the stuff that we do and how we have a positive impact on people might not be popular, you know, because you may be challenging people and taking them out of their comfort zone. And that, that is particularly the case, I guess, when you're dealing with institutions and this is more your bag, Jonathan, organizations, where yeah. have that kind of DNA and structure and resistance to change. Yes, I, I mean, um, I, I think it's a very interesting point to make about popularity. And, and we've got into the three Ps of populism, post-truth and polarization of the likes mm. of Boris and Trump and Bolsonaro. <laughs> and, and, oh, you were going to get him in. Yeah, Boris. Couldn't, couldn't get Boris, couldn't leave Boris out. Um, but it, it's interesting. Um, will people do the right thing? I mean, for example... It's not a brief cup of tea, but in the UK, the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, um, he's making politics boring again. Thank God, mm. because yeah, exactly. tr we had Liz Truss completely making it a joke, a sort of comedian on stage um, with her Chancellor and Boris before that. And now we're trying to get back. And, and I, I think the Labour government will uh, be the next one with... Um, with, again, with a sort of steady prime minister. Um, and, and and that's actually sometimes what we want. It's not terribly yeah. exciting. An operator. Yeah, it's not exciting, but they're, they're, they're looking after it and the legacy they're leaving rather than short-term win for their friends and mm. like with, with, with Boris and his parties and, and, and mates of mates who were getting money from... Uh, contracts with the NHS during the pandemic, so making money from people's deaths and stuff like that. You know that that's short term. They're they're making themselves enriching themselves and their friends, but it's not mm. good good for the country long term. And so sometimes, as you say, your legacy is a sustainable difference that you make, which does make not make you popular at the time. Yeah. And so you know, in, in mine, Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, I think she's leaving, she's left an amazing legacy, both in her yeah. lifetime and and afterwards. And I'm yet to see quite what Harry and Meghan's legacy is, having read their book, uh, his book, Spare. Um, I, I'm just a little concerned that we, we're becoming too introspective mm. and uh, this is not fair and life's, life dealt me a terrible blow and things, rather than duty and service and uh, taking some hard knocks for the good of the country. He could have gone one of two ways because he, you know, he had service in the military and, and various things like that and was, uh, did some great work with uh, Help for Heroes and mm. um, Invictus. The, the Invictus, the Invictus Games, great. And, and Princess Diana, both mm. you know, the things that she did for um, 
the uh, the halo trust, uh, the anti-mining and holding the hand of an AIDS victim, the small legacy mm-hmm. things that change the way people think. And then yeah. you've got Florence Nightingale, who who was working at a time when she was so lacking in respect from others mm-hmm. and her own family thought she was actually doing something which was worse than becoming a prostitute. She was going mm. to become a nurse. Mm. Like, no, not, not our wealthy family. This, and she, she dithered and doubted whether she should do it after all. But, but at the time she wasn't recognized for quite a long time. It's often, you know, certainly with our own families, you know, who never read our own books that we write or whatever <laughs> like that. No, dad, I haven't got around to reading your book yet, but it's actually quite a, a lovely, um, special moment for me that both my daughters Harriet and Brani uh, book uh, or just started a book monthly coaching sessions with their dad different from our normal chats these, these are business coaching sessions where mm. where I'm able to use what I've learned to benefit my children what else nice. are we doing it for if we're not doing it for family so I think that brings me back to my final point uh, before passing over to you again which is I think family is a big part of legacy yeah. that, that when I die if if I've brought up children to be kind and balanced and happy, mm-hmm. happily successful um, in their own terms, not in my term of what I want success to be, but what success means for them, that I've been I've been loving, I've been thoughtful, I've been supportive of my wife and 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 my stepchildren and my grandchildren. Uh, that is success at the end of my life. It, it's not how many. Uh, new contracts I'd won or mm-hmm. but but also I think part of it is nice in what we, you do is we've touched the lives of people in a positive way through helping them through supporting them through challenging the way they are that that's that's for mm. me a legacy and leaving a difference yeah mm. what about you absolutely yeah yeah we've mentioned it before but if you've missed the episode there's a great book and a lot of articles written about it um, by, I think the book's name, it's often quoted under different names, is like The Five Regrets of the Dying. Yes. Yeah, by yeah. Bonnie Ware, who is a palliative nurse. It's really interesting. And she, I find that really fascinating because, you know, there's a lot of talk of death in these these podcasts, but not in a morbid sense. It's like Alan Watts, the philosopher, said, like, you know, death is like the manure of life. It's that you need death to remind us like what life is about without you know like for example you you look at a rose a flower and it's beautiful but it dies and that's the reason why it's beautiful because it's impermanent it will soon be gone and it's the same like if you look at a plastic flower it's just not the same because it will never die you know the value of life is created by its it's impermanence the fact that it will go away and so therefore we need that death and we need that understanding to remind us what this is about mm. and that's why when we're so caught up in the the busyness of life that we don't think about this is we're caught up with you know paying the bills or you know getting the shopping or you know just trying to lose another kilo or whatever it may be that's the life a reality for most people that we don't think about actually you know another day just ticks by and okay another day ticks and bam you're 50 or you're 60 right where did all that go hmm. and so that bonnie Ware book is really interesting i think it's bonnie Ware. apologies it's she she's 
because she talks to terminally ill patients, these are the only people who have that kind of clarity of what it's all about. Because when you're terminally ill, so, you know, if you're in a situation where you have months, maybe a year of life left, everything just falls away. You know, the BS falls away. You don't get angry about things which you shouldn't get angry about. You don't get stressed about things that are meaningless, just totemic things in our life. So those are the people that really understand what it's all about. And it's really interesting when asked what their regrets were. I find that fascinating. For me, it's almost like a touchstone. It's like, if you look at the five regrets of the dying, for me, that's the five you know, like that's your commandments for living, if you like. And I won't cite all five, but the number one interesting regret, and it was universal language, background, creed, whatever. Number one was, um, I, I wish I hadn't worked so hard, <laughs> which is just fine, fascinating. And then, you know, no, I think number two was, I wish I had um, spent more time with people that I loved. And I get all the numbers wrong, but number three was something like I wish I had kind of something to the degree of found my true voice, which was like express myself in the way that I wanted to express it. And these are like the most common regrets. And I just find that fact, I think it's a little bit sad, but it's also empowering. I don't know. What do you feel about it? Do you feel sad or like in terms of a legacy when you hear these people talking about their final days and talking about their lives lived? I mean, mm. Mm. Is it morbid or is it empowering? What do you think? I, I find it deeply empowering. And uh, when uh, my late mother-in-law, Marguerite, uh, was in the oncology department, she, she died of uh, a mixture of uh, anal cancer, heart disease, lung disease, and uh, Alzheimer's. One of them was going to kill her first at 76. And um, it, it it took me into the ecology department. I was sitting, waiting for her with uh, all the other patients uh, watching, uh, I think it was one of the big international football games was going on. And I got talking about the regrets of the dying. Um, I, I did it in a way it doesn't sound as tactless, uh, tactless as I'm now doing. Yeah, how, are you, how are you guys doing? You're all dying? Uh, what, what thoughts have you got? But it was almost like, what advice would you give to yeah. people who I I coach and I I have on the podcast, uh, and and it was this thing about um they, they were different ages and they they were all terminally ill they were all going to die they they told me so this was uh, probably led to the conversation and uh, it, it was that close ones loved ones family uh, having the conversations with them not not when they've died but before they've died mm -hmm. and that you strive so hard in a job to one of them had had rolls royces and things like that but then he lost it all he'd been an entrepreneur um and he said we get caught up in the the trappings the the bling the the stuff that the marketeers uh dream they sell you about you'll be happy when mm. dot 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 you have five rolex watches um that you can only wear one but it's nice to have five um and he said it's all it's all a lie and that actually uh to make the most of your health to, to keep your health uh, as long as you can to to have your health span match your lifespan to to spend time with family to stop with a grandchild to pick up a, a flower and not rush them on and pull the hand um to to watch my dog eating the the leaves on the tree behind 
uh, little willows back there up to mischief. So what it's doing? Yeah, it's just it's just thinking, oh, what it's hello, willow. What do you do? Um, I think uh, I, I think they it puts everything into perspective. And and you mentioned that that book, the the Five Regrets of the Dying by by Bonnie. And and uh, the others I I would add on inspired leadership books and the legacy section would be uh, How Will You Measure Your Life by Clayton M. Christensen, mm. which is really about the sort of what matters in your life and how, how are you going to measure, as you get to the final days, how, I mean, I, I've had a number of, you know, calls where I, and particularly with David dying and Graham being stabbed uh, in that terrible uh, attack on his home. Uh, my final moments have, have been very front of mind for the last two or three years, as we've discussed mm. a few times. But actually, it's just made me realize if I died later today, have I lived a full life? And and seeing Lee uh, get these uh, beneficiaries in her charity, telling their story and how it touched everybody in the room and the difference it made, that makes it all worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And and I feel that, you know, I've got lots more to do. But if I was to die, I've had a full life. I, I've, you know, I've screeched across the finish line going, hell, what a ride with a smell of burning rubber, having had a great time and done some crazy, crazy things. So How Will You Measure Life? Legacy by James Kerr about the New Zealand rugby team and their culture and their legacy. Uh, another mm. one on death and dying by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, uh, mm. which was uh, You Can Change a Life by Tim Lawrence, which is um, about <laughs> legacy and the Hoffman process. Uh, and then the Daily Stoic, Ryan Holiday's, you know, 365 mm. reflections yeah. and meditations on the year from uh, those uh, people we have. And I'll just share a little poem, which I found quite relevant. And then then maybe a final word or two from you, Graham, before we appreciate quality about each other's and wrap up next month with eight elements and, and what the whole lot means that the integrated inspired leadership. But this is by Matthew Arnold, the Victorian poet and a biographer of Marcus Aurelius, uh, who wrote quite beautifully of the tragedy of a busy, adventurous life that was missing something. And, and the poem goes like this, just four lines. And see all sights from pole to pole, and glance and nod and bustle by, and never once possess our soul before we die. I, and I think yeah. I, I'll leave you with that. Um, That'll be eulogy. Mm. yeah nice what what does what does your soul mean to you graham that's a big area i don't know like i'm I'm not i'm not a religious person anyway i believe in um but i mean i i share a lot of the values of religion i think there's universal truths right so when it comes to soul i don't know i mean like uh i you know when i hear poetry I, i believe in the beauty of poetry and I love the beauty of the architect. I mean, I look at a church or a mosque or a temple, and I'm not religious, but I can enjoy the beauty of it and appreciate the beauty of humanity. And I, I like I hear that poem and I like hear music. And to me, that soul is it's that's what it's about. You know, that sort of there's a human yearning for that. Uh, I very much do enjoy poetry. I'm a fan of many poets, um, so and, and I enjoy you know, as much as it doesn't appear to be my avatar, I do enjoy all different kinds of soulful music, like, for example, opera. I'm absolutely a mad fan of opera, and I love it. And I love all of that, that sort of expression, that sort of vulnerability. 
So, um, and I think those touching moments that you, you sort of see those vignettes of life summarized in four lions mm. to me, that's soul. Mm. It's like, you know, it, it's, it's a real, uh, it's a tribute really. If somebody can do that for you, write an, a eulogy, if you like, or a summary of somebody's life in a, such a poignant and perfect way. That's a great legacy. I feel you don't have to have this sort of like bandstand, you know, grandstand, sorry, version of it. So, yeah, that to mm. me is soul. I don't know. Mm. It's difficult to define, Jonathan, because it's it's not definable in many ways. What about you? How would you uh, define it? Well, there's a lovely one, not quite the definition of it, but it, it was, um, I forgot where it came from, but the, the, the gods, the story goes that the gods decided that they, they really wanted to protect humans from finding their soul. And so they first, they, they put it on the highest mountain and the humans all climbed up to the highest mountain and they found it. And so that's no good. So we can't, we can't hide it there. They're going to find it. They'll discover it. And then they said, we'll put it in the deepest ocean. And then, of course, the humans went diving and exploring with their submarines and they found the soul down there. And they went, I know what we'll do. We'll put it inside them. They'll never discover it there. They'll never we find it. We knew that was coming. <laughs> <laughs> the setup was so obvious, Jonathan. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, Graham, let me end with appreciating equality about you, yeah. my friend. Um, I truly value you as a human with humanity and experience and wisdom beyond your years. And I really love time with you. So thank you. That's my appreciation of you today. Thank you, Jonathan. I do really appreciate that. And I appreciate you because I think I'll go all the way back to the beginning. Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, is he said, you know, what it's all about, live, laugh, leave, leave a legacy. And I think this is what these conversations are about. You know, I feel like, we're living it. We're just in, enjoying having these conversations, deep conversations we don't normally have, right? Yeah, I can yeah. have those with you. You're very open and very forthright with your, your feelings and your experiences. And laugh. I think we enjoy mm -hmm. our times, a bit of banter, as you call it. But I yeah. think that's what it's about. And hopefully maybe some of your listeners laugh along as well. And leaving a legacy, you know, those great questions from um the audience I, I love those questions so you know i appreciate the fact that you've set that up and you know you've created that community and those that network around you so it's been a, a very enriching experience and hopefully this is the beginning <laughs> there's is, more there's more and there's more and there's more well look graham thank you very much and for for those listening and watching i'm going to leave in the show notes uh, a link to the inspiring leadership foundation if you want to leave a legacy in your time, whether it be giving your time as a mentor, as a coach, or whether making a donation to help only 180 pounds per girl will make a huge difference to their lives in the, the courses and the work that we do. I would appreciate that. And you'd be, you know, looking after that starfish, making a difference to that person in their lives. So thank you for joining us. It's great to have you on you. And Graham, I look forward to our next session in a month's time. Thank you. Goodbye. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. 
But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.